Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. We've all participated in the rituals of the dead at some time or another in our lives, going to funerals and wakes, visiting loved ones in cemeteries. Some of us may even have a plan for when we pass away ourselves, but few of us have considered the myriad of ways we memorialize our deceased and what compels us to honor and remember our dead in ways we don't often do for the living. In his debut essay collection, The Book of Resting Places, A Personal History of Where We Lay the Dead, author Thomas Mira E. Lopez examines how we memorialize those we've lost. In the wake of his father's untimely death, Mira E. Lopez navigates a complicated relationship with grief, taking the reader along on a walk through the memorial trees in Central Park, a drive over the Sonoran Desert to Alcor's cryonics preservation facility, a trek across the ocean to the catacombs under Rome, the lonely canals of Venice, and countless cemeteries. As with any good book of the dead, Mir E. Lopez's work serves as a kind of memento mori, concerned primarily with the living left behind, how we grieve those we've lost and come to terms with our own morality and the inevitability of death. Here to discuss his collection on the New Books Network today, please welcome Thomas Mira E. Lopez. Thomas, thank you so much for being here with us today. Uh, thank you, Zoe. Yeah, thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. Um, so we're here today to talk about your debut collection of essays, The Book of Resting Places, A Personal History of Where We Lay the Dead. Um, so first off, uh, tell me a little bit about the impetus for the writing of this book. Um, this is a collection of essays. Um, so I guess, which which essay did you begin with? Well, say... Maybe, I mean, the first impetus um, was my father passed away when I was in college, just way back in 2006, um, when I was a junior in college. And after he passed away, we, we never really did anything um, with his body, or I should say his ashes. Um, they sort of stayed in uh, my mom's, I think in, in my mom's closet, she put them there. And so I got to thinking... Um, you know, kind of years after I got to thinking about why we did that um, or why we didn't do anything with um, his remains. And that got me actually the first essay in this book um, isn't in the book. It was, I took a walk to a cemetery in, in New York city called Calvary cemetery that holds kind of over 3 million people. It's got a population larger technically than Chicago. And I wrote an essay about that and was sort of thinking about, um, the way the dead were interred in that cemetery versus the way, uh, my father or, or people in my family, um, weren't interred the way we sort of, um, held their memory. Um, and that from there really started, me kind of down this rabbit hole of thinking of, of um, the different places in which um, my father's body sometimes or his or the memory of him, the different places in which those were held. And the first place I thought to is, is the first essay in the book, which is called uh, Memory Memorial. Uh, and what happened was my mom has a house in, in sort of rural Pennsylvania in Northeast Pennsylvania. And there's a tree on the property, a, a Buckeye that my dad had planted. Um, and over the years after his death, the Buckeye sort of took on this sort of like, you know, mystical, almost numinous um, uh, a quality to it where my mom believed, you know, sometimes metaphorically, and then sometimes to me, it seemed literally that, that my dad's body had become the tree in, in that he planted it and, and sort of the ways that a tree can be made anthropomorphic. Um, so I started thinking about that and, and that was the first essay in the book. And I was, I was thinking about the different ways we remember the dead and what that says about what we want to remember and, and what we want to forget, right? How we try to shape or contort or fit a memory uh, for maybe our own psychological well-being or our own, uh, our own way to, to sort of think about grief. Right. And what really struck me about that essay in particular is, um, so we, we see you as the speaker and your mother um, going to Pennsylvania to visit dad's tree, right? Which 
And um, your reactions to the tree are very different. And so it got me thinking about um, the different ways that we memorialize, the different ways that we perform ceremony um, for, for those that we've lost, even if we've lost the same person. Um, and so I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to that. Yeah, it's, that's a great question. I was, I mean, I was, I'm totally, at least in that essay, and I think I would like to think that my attitude towards it now has changed a little bit, but in the essay or in the time of the essay, I'm, I'm totally a little snot, you know, towards, um, this, this tree that she's, uh, ascribed so much kind of spiritual power to, um, you know, I, I, I don't want to go see it. I want to go take a nap. Uh, I sort of like, I know my dad isn't there, or at least, you know, according, according to, you know, my beliefs at the time, like that's, I don't buy into that. Um, and yeah, I think that's really something where it's, it's, I mean, it's a super kind of interesting fraught question, especially for, you know, like us who are writing nonfiction or writing memoirs is sort of like who gets to control, um, you know, the, the dead are gone, the dead can't speak for themselves, but then who gets to control the memory of the dead um, and whose eyes they're seen through? Uh, and so for me, you know, and, and sort of this minor, I mean, that has obviously, you know, major, major ramifications when it comes to any sort of, you know, um, maybe say scale of mass death or, or how deaths can be politicized or not politicized, forgotten or not forgotten. Um, but at least in this essay, it comes through in this sort of very personal scale of, um, my dad seen through my mom's eyes becomes that tree. Um, and in that way becomes something, there's some sort of tension or that's rubbing up against a way that I want to remember or, or not remember him. Um, and it's that question of, 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 um, you know, if I do remember him that way, at least I feel in this essay, I'm remembering him through her, right through her eyes. And there's some sort of kind of pushback or this sort of, uh, fight for control of, of, of how we see, um, someone we've lost. And, you know, of course, the irony of that is then I go and write about it. And then I'm sort of reasserting control in some way of saying like, hey, this is how I remember it. This is, you know, these are my eyes that I'm seeing him through. Um, And turning myself and turning my mom and, you know, turning my dad into a character on the page is also this sort of um, act of control and act of distortion at the same time that is this act of, um, it wants to be this act of love and act of, of, um, of eulogy or elegy, um, there's, there's still some sort of form of self-interest in there. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's definitely a tension that, that, I mean, I, when I sort sort of start to notice it, I see it playing out all over the place, but, um, that, yeah, that was something in that essay. Yeah, I noticed that. And, um, that was for me a really interesting tension because it also extends to not only how we memorialize the dead, but also how we would individually want to be remembered. And um, your mother in the piece, there's an essay where um, you talk about, is it Mastabas? Is that the correct oh, a plan. pronunciation? Yeah, Mast- I think so. I think so. I should actually know that, but yeah, Mastabas sounds right <laughs> to me. Yeah. Right. But this idea that, you know, so she's um, collecting all of these sort of heirlooms and things like that and, and arranging them in such a way. And she says that she'll, she, she's most happy when she's sort of around her, her stuff and she wishes she could take it with her. And um, I thought that that was really fascinating too. And you talk quite a bit about that in the book, not only how we memorialize others, but how we have an attachment to how we are memorialized. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about that? Um, some avenues you explore in these essays? Yeah, about, um, so I'll say, yeah, for that. So my mom is for that essay for, uh, I think it's the essay plan for the afterlife. Um, yeah, my mom has become sort of an antiquer, uh, and that she's, so she's sort of made a, um, a hobby, if not a job out of kind of going around and, and collecting stuff. And, um, what it is, is that it's this sort of, it's an object that can take a life of its own on um, often her life or lives of people she's loved once she, you know, sort of um, once it comes into her possession and she can imbue it with meaning. And what's uh, yeah, what's particularly kind of like funny for me about that or interesting about that for me is that there's no, you know, it's almost for her, this, this, this total control that she can kind of exert. Um, And it's often, 
I think is present in the essay and present in much of what we do um, when we think about how we want to be memorialized is that it, it gives us an opportunity to maybe plan something out um, or arrange something just so. And that sort of focused sense of control, right? Being able to look at, here is my gravestone. Here's exactly how it will look. This is the, you know, the type of stone I want to use. This is how weathered I want it to appear. These are the exact words on it. Um, Having that sort of focused or micro sense of control, uh, I think helps alleviate us when there's this sort of larger sense of chaos or lack of control, or or maybe, you know, um, a larger fear of a lack of meaning. Um, So I think about you know, there's another essay in this book called Parallax. Um, and this is yet another way that my mom has kind of memorialized my dad is that she went and um, there's some sort of service. And I think they're about a, kind of a swindle, so I won't say their name here in the interview. But there's a service where you can go and basically, you know, quote unquote, buy a star um, somewhere in a far off galaxy. And, and you can have that star. You can name that star. And she named a star after um you know, my dad, herself, and, and me, you know, this sort of trio, like happy family. Um, and it's this really, you know, sort of focused sense of like, okay, I can control this, right? Um, and what's sort of funny about that is like, after she got the star, she, she, I think she came up with this term, she, she developed something she called cosmophobia, which is this fear of the sky and the fear of, um, you know, the cosmos and the galaxy and the, you know, kind of vastness and sort of nothingness or whatever it is that's out there. And at first I thought she was joking, but I realized this, you know, this was something that was actually um, had real meaning for her, was a real worry in a lot of ways. And, and I think it had to do with, you know, without psychoanalyzing my poor mother, you know, bless her heart to death too much. Um, I mean, I think that has to do with, with, you know, when you lose someone you weren't expecting to lose or when something, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's tragic strikes sort of unexpectedly that idea of the cosmos or whatever reflected that in some way, reflected that lack of meaning or lack of order or lack of um, uh, agency to control events. And so I think there's always that tension when we, yeah, think about how we want to be memorialized uh, or how we want to memorialize others is it's, you know, it's a coping mechanism in some way, um, but it's one that has, you know, real value and real imagination and, and, you know, real cultural importance over the years. So what do you make then of, there's an essay that stands out in particular um, called The Eternal Comeback in this collection where um, it's, it's less about memorializing the self or the loved one and more about preserving them um, in a process called, is it cryonics? Yeah, I think, I think, yeah, it's cryonics. I, I, often people say cryogenics. I think that's what I said for a lot of the time, but yeah, the, the, the process being cryonics. Um, yeah, totally. Um, so, so should I speak to that or, or? Yeah. I mean, I'm curious what you make of that. Um, is there, I guess what, what drives that desire to preserve the self because memorialization is an attempt you, you speak about this often in the collection to preserve, um, the memory of a person or the memory of losing a person. Um, but we don't necessarily want people to come back. Right. You also talk about in several of the essays, um, and especially in the Mastaba piece, um, about how, we've gone to great lengths to keep our dead dead, you know, with tombstones being weights to sort of make sure that they can't uh, crawl up out of the earth and stuff like that. Early peoples were very afraid of the dead coming back to life. So what do you make of um, this sort of new movement of people who are hoping to elude death in this way? Yeah. So maybe I should, so I should, I guess I should define or say what cryonics is. And that's, um, Basically, it's yeah, cryonic freezing where you you put yourself at um, – it's people who believe if they're not necessarily frozen but kept at very low temperatures, um, I think it's negative 196 degrees Celsius. Uh, if, they're, if the body is kept at very low temperatures, one day, you know, X amount of years in the future, uh, the technology will be present to – revive them, so to speak. Um, and it's, it's, to me, it's, you know, it's wrapped up with notions of transhumanism and the singularity, um, and also nanotechnology, this idea of certainly no expert in this, but, um, this idea of being able to, uh, grow a new body, say, or grow a younger body based off, you know, 
our DNA, which is obviously not a present capability of technology, but maybe one day, who knows, will be. Um, and so these people sign up. Um, and there's numerous companies that do this, but the, the company that I sort of profiled was looking at more closely was, was Alcor, which is based, which is the largest cryonics company, and it's based in Scottsdale, Arizona. Um, and people sign up for this, uh, either just preserving their head, um, which is a cheaper uh, method, or their whole body um, for hundreds of thousands of dollars, um, often through life insurance or, or almost always through life insurance. And yeah, the, basically the hope is that, you know, technology will advance and, and, and they'll come back to life. Um, and so I was totally, you know, this was suggested to me by, um, by my by my thesis advisor like why don't you go check out cryonics and it was you know totally something i didn't know about and was sort of kind of um my initial reaction was to be creeped out by it um and so went up there with a friend and and was lucky enough to be able to interview some people who had signed up for it as well and i mean i had a couple takeaways from it and the first was like you know it's it's in a lot of ways like a really quite lovely belief in um you know, the capabilities of the human mind, right? That the, it's this sort of aspiration or optimism for the future um, in that, uh, you know, technology will progress that we will be able to do this. You know, we'll be able to bring someone back um, who's beloved or, or, you know, at least a family member. Um, we could maybe bring them back to life. You know, this the, the end doesn't necessarily have to be the end, right? Um, and one of the arguments Cryonics makes is that death isn't always exactly death, right? You know, our sort of conception of that um, has changed throughout the years as technology has been able to, say, save people or medicine has been able to save people that would, you know, be presumably um, presumed dead. Um, and at the same time, that is a sort of lovely optimism about the future. It's also, to me, I'm sort of thinking like kind of selfish, you know, in the sense that, um, it's really only open to people who have, uh, the money or the means to afford it, right? You always sort of get your kind of, um, list of sort of kind of far out celebrities who have signed up for, for cryonic freezing, such as I think it was like Simon Cowell and Larry King and Walt Disney famously, but he, I don't think he's actually, um, I think it's actually just an urban legend. Um, but it also seems sort of selfish, you know, it sort of seems sort of, um, to me counter to the spirit of, of what we're here to do on earth or the counter to the idea of like, you know, you inherit the earth and then you, you pass it along to others and you try not to leave um, a sort of mark that, well, it just seems counter to the whole idea of, of, you know, we're approaching kind of a potential devastation to the climate and, and, you know, coming back for more <laughs> is, is might not necessarily help out. Um, and so, yeah, all that tension was there and, and, um, as was many things when I was sort of studying, you know, these sort of different memorial processes or death processes that it, it really ultimately seemed to me, you know, it, it's, it's about life too. Um, and it's about sort of the idea, you know, in, in, I experienced this enough in my own life when saying like, well, that wasn't so good. Maybe next time it'll be better. Um, yet it's cryonic sort of puts that on the scale of a life being like, well, these are maybe all the ways that life, um, you know, hasn't worked out for me or hasn't been ideal or hasn't been, you know, sort of utopian. But if I come back later in the future, um, that'll be solved or I'll have another chance. Um, and it's sort of, you know, it's this kind of great procrastination or, or, or great and perhaps like false, like idealism in some way. Um, so it was, it was, it's a, yeah, it's a really fascinating process. And, you know, who knows? I mean, who am I to say, who knows? Maybe it'll, it'll work out. Um, I'd be interested to see if it does, although I don't, I don't think I will be around. Um, so. Right. You know. You're not going to sign up for cryogenics. No, then. I don't think so. <laughs> not, um, yeah. Not even if, if, not even if financial things drastically changed. Um, it is, it is. Yeah, it is. Well, that's, that's also, it's, just, it's one of the times too, where it's, you know, sort of, I think in our modern our sort of modern experience of death and, and, and many writers have, have pointed this really eloquently is that we're really removed from death, right? You know, the body goes to the morgue, gets cremated, it gets embalmed, you know, whatever's going to happen, but we're not really, um, we don't really may, maybe have that same physical proximity or closeness to the process of dying or what the body does after death that, that, um, you know, say people centuries before us had. Um, and, 
so the one kind of one weird wrinkle about cryonics is that it's it's a really you know it's a funky way of storing the dead right i mean the dead are stored in you know up to four bodies or i think eight or ten heads at a time in the same liquid nitrogen container um and it asks us to kind of like approach your experience, you know, the body. Um, and I would say the dead body, um, someone at Alcor would probably just say like the sleeping body. Um, it, it asks us to experience that in, in, in kind of a, a, a way we're not used to. And I think there's, I mean, that's, that's, I think what was kind of given me like the willies as well, so to speak. Um, and, but there, I think there is also value in that, right. In, in having to be confronted with something that um, we can normally just sort of like, that we want to brush aside, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a great segue into another question I had, um, because you've done tons and tons of research, obviously, um, into sort of historical ceremonies and rituals and things like that. Um, and I was wondering how the ways that people have memorialized loved ones have changed drastically over time. Um, because there are obviously some things like burial has been for thousands and thousands of years. Um, but what are some things that, that are different now that people maybe didn't used to? I guess the, the way that I mostly looked at that, um, through the book, uh, is through, is through maybe how cemeteries have changed. Um, and, you know, it used to be, and, and I don't want to get this wrong, but it used to be that cemeteries were basically saved before the French revolution were basically based around, um, or at least, you know, cemeteries in, in, uh, Western Europe were, were based around like the churchyard, um, or even, you know, say like a lot of early American cemeteries, um, were, were based around the churchyard. And that's where, um, the people who had means to go like went right. Um, and then starting with, um, Père Lachaise was really one of the first cemeteries to do this. And then you see, um, sort of, uh, models of that cemetery in, um, you know, Boston and New York with Greenwood Cemetery and um, throughout the United States after, after Pierre Lachaise. Um, but then America, that Pierre Lachaise sort of democratized the dead, so to speak, right? Here was um, a large sort of landmass um, devoted to often the lesser desirable parts of the city or the town, right? Something built on a hill or something built where you couldn't really maybe have housing as much. Um, and, but Perlich has the idea there is, you know, the dead were democratized, right? There is, um, there's room for everyone, so to speak. And, um, you know, I see that, that I mentioned the first cemetery I went to in, in, uh, New York, or not the first cemetery I went to, but the, the first essay of this book, Cavalry Cemetery in Queens, um, was bought on farmland in, you know, the 1840s in, in, you know, the County of Queens. And that was only bought there because I believe it was St. Patrick's, um, ran out of room in their own little sort of churchyard cemetery. And so I think once, um, once that happened, at least in the United States, um, the way the United States, you know, to me, and I'm, you know, putting it broadly, but the way they conceive, the way we conceive of the dead here, the way we conceive of the dead in the cemeteries is that, um, there's sort of infinite room, there's room for everyone. And not only is there room for everyone, uh, there's room for everyone to stay forever, right? Like the United States is, is um, one of the few, if not the only countries to, to kind of offer perpetual care of the dead in its cemeteries. Um, so if you're say in, in as a cemetery in Germany or something like that, you get, you know, two generations um, and then your bones are taken out and put into sort of a communal grave. Um, and here, uh, and here it's different. Um, although I think that's, you know, there's, there's a realization that that has to change or that's, you know, um, maybe not sustainable in some ways. And, and for me, that really seems to reflect, you know, you go to a cemetery now and you'll see the kind of, you know, it's sort of this almost miniature version of a city. You'll see these kind of grand old graves, um, with, you know, sort of maybe the, the wealthier, longer standing families, you'll see the families around that. Um, and then, you know, you'll see the potter's field out beyond the line of a row of trees, right, with unmarked graves and unmarked bodies there. Um, and you'll also see sort of um, often these sort of, I don't know the exact term for them, but like almost chapels, right, where you have, um, it's almost kind of like apartment buildings for the dead, right, where you have sort of these columbaria of, of um, bodies put in there. And, you know, to me, that's like, you know, an apartment complex or something. And that's 
also offering perpetual care, but that's also helping pay off um, the sort of older graves um, that have maybe like the prime real estate. And so in this weird way, this is probably not what exactly you're asking, but in this weird way, it's, it seems like, you know, the cemeteries now are a mirror for how we, we um, construct or live in our, in, in our cities. Um, and I think there's a growing awareness, maybe not, but, but that, you know, we're going to run out of room or that this isn't the best way to, to sustain not only the memory of the dead, but to sustain, you know, where the dead are placed anyway, like, you know, the landscape and the land and the um, surrounding environment of it. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, to me, that's at least one way, um, you know, from this kind of small um, family scale or the, you know, the, the, the family cemetery out, you know, um, in, in a, a rural area or something like that to uh, this kind of large scale, how do we fit everyone provided they can pay, um, provided that we don't sort of run out of places. Um, that's, that's one way I saw sort of like maybe the, um, the handling of the dead, at least in cemeteries change. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Um, and it reminds me too this conversation of uh, your essay, Overburden, which talks about the um, exhumation and the relocation of bodies that were buried um, in Tucson, where the, um, where the new courthouse was being built in the early 2000s? Yeah, the new, the new Pima County yeah. Courthouse, um, which, yeah, I don't know if you must, I don't know if you've been to it or not since you're a Tucsonan, but um, uh, yeah, so that's, that's, yeah, this is sort of crazy, you know, <laughs> so I'm from New York City and, and it's just always sort of, the, the turnover of businesses in New York City was always something I kind of like grumbled about when I was younger, you know, like, oh, that's my favorite restaurant, it's gone, or oh, that's the place where, you know, um, I like to buy, you know, baseball cards or something. It's gone and it's made way for something sort of blander and more corporate or, or whatever, right? Um, which is a, a kind of, you know, I realize often a, a tired narrative. Um, but yeah, in Tucson, it was it was it was kind of weird to see this play out in um, kind of the theater of the living and the dead. And that, you know, when when Tucson was first incorporated as an American city um, or as a city in the United States, um, and obviously had been around for a lot longer than that. Um, uh, you know, this place, National Cemetery, was, you know, this sort of central location. It was much smaller. That's where the, the dead were put. Um, the cemetery is declared defunct. Uh, the people who could afford uh, to exhume their loved ones did so. This was back in the 1880s. It was sort of, I think, apparently like a sanitary mess of a cemetery. Um, so some of the bodies were removed when it was declared defunct. And of course, yeah, that depended on you know, the financial situation of those families. And then basically was built over for, you know, I, you know, more than a hundred years, um, first residential, uh, you know, homes and then sort of commercial establishments and businesses. I think there was an Outback steakhouse on, on top of the cemetery or something like that. Um, and eventually, uh, you know, Tucson needs a new courthouse, but the courthouse needs a deeper foundation and a deeper basement in which I think they'll hold some of the cells or they do hold some of their cells. And that means they have to exhume, they have to dig down further than they have. And that, of course, um, leads to all of these remains underneath um, the site that have, people have known about them, but have sort of conveniently forgotten about them. There's, there's nothing that you have to do about them necessarily, right? They're not really disturbing anyone. And so, yeah, it becomes this really... Um, tricky question of what to do with the remains and the remains include, you know, um, Tucson citizens, uh, us soldiers, uh, it, it, they contain the remains. It was an incredibly diverse cemetery. Um, so remains of people, you know, of Mexican descent remains of, um, people from the Tohono Odom nation. And so it's becomes this kind of question of, of, well, what do we do with these bones here in a way that honors, um, in a way that respects the, the different places, um, that, that they come from. Right. So for one of the tensions of that, um, was that for the Tohono Odom nation to remove those bones, to remove the bodies was just not, um, was not really kosher, so to speak, was not, um, necessarily a measure of respect. So to, to move them at all was, you know, constituted a problem. Um, Whereas other people um, wanted the remains back or wanted to put them in, in uh, a cemetery that was being kept up where they could be properly marked um, and commemorated. And it was a way of sort of reestablishing um, 
a relationship with a history that had been lost. Uh, so it's, it's, yeah, it leads to all these kind of fascinating questions of how, um, how one properly disposes of the dead. Um, and especially, you know, the term used to exhume the bodies, it was called repatriation, right? To send people back to their own country, um, which is such a loaded term because, you know, these are the people who lived in Tucson, who, um, who were residents there. This was their country, right? So to say that, you know, this isn't their country anymore, that they have to go somewhere else to, you know, put down, um, especially for a courthouse and all that a courthouse might represent is um, uh, there's a certain amount. I mean, irony is not quite the right word for it, but there's, um, that's a pretty thorny word to use. Um, And yeah, so that was, it was just, and again, it was one of those times where it's like, you know, you think like, uh, who cares about the dead? And then you, you realize this has so, uh, so many ramifications for, um, you know, say like present U S um, policy. Um, so yeah, I don't know. It was, it was a, a super fascinating thing to find out more about. Yeah, it is really fascinating. Um, and something I was struck with when, um, when I was reading this collection is just how many places, we go, right? And how many um, facets we explore. Um, So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your research process. You seem like the kind of writer who is really interested in research. And and so I thought, well, you must have had so much that you had to pare back and, and choose from. So yeah, there are a couple wonky, wonky things that I couldn't include, I think for a bunch, um, for several of these essays, um, one of the things that got me going was to take a statement, um, or to take a belief that I normally wouldn't, um, question and then, and then question what that actually looked like. So, um, you know, my mom says, for example, my mom tells me over the phone, I want to be buried like the Egyptian pharaohs. I want to take all of my stuff with me um, you know, to the, to the afterlife. And so the simple question there was just like, you know, well, well what, like, I, what did the Egyptian, like, what did the actual burial process look like? Right. Why did they take their stuff with them? What was the afterlife? What were, um, what was the reasoning behind that? And, and kind of, you know, going to library, going to the, you know, um, going to that particular section of the library and kind of picking and choosing and, and humming around and humming around and trying to find ways that um, uh, reading more about that to try to find parallels, but then also maybe points of tension as well. Right. Cause if it's just one huge parallel um, between that situation and my mom's situation, it doesn't, it doesn't always work, but um, just at least there was just like, well, what did that uh, like, what did that, what did that process actually look like? What is that, what is that sort of, you know, kind of jokey statement, what if we took it seriously and, and, and really tried to figure that out? Um, and, you know, in other times for, for other of these essays um, that came through, I'd just be stuck with, struck with something that I was reading. Um, and, you know, I read about, I think, the River Lethe, you know, the, the, that's one of the rivers of the Greek underworld, which is this river of forgetfulness, a river of oblivion, um, which the dead have to pass over. And, I think I read that and and I forget what I was reading, but, you know, I came across it and then, you know, jotted it down and sort of thought, you know, well, what does that, how can I take that further or or, or what does that river feed? And then, you know, from there I thought, okay, like a river, you know, an underground river, that's a water source for a tree and kind of like cobbling together these um, different ways of, of trying to make meaning with something. Um, But I wish I had a more, maybe discipline rationale for the research. Um, it's something I wonder a lot about too, as a writer where I think we can get in, we can get in a rut or I at least can get in a rut if I research too much beforehand. Right. If I say, um, Oh, I want to write about this. And then I read about that subject to death. Um, it almost in a way sort of, um, stifles whatever it is I'm actually going to write. And on the flip side of that, there's, there's something sort of freeing to like, I'm just going to write this out. Um, and then kind of afterwards going back through and trying to find those moments, uh, that need that sort of deepening or that need some sort of tension in the thinking or contradiction in the thinking and and finding that through research. Um, but so it's, it's always this balance that I I really haven't figured out. And and it almost seems like if I do figure it out for an essay, I try to stumble back and think like, well, how do I do that? And I try to recreate it and it never works. 
So um, right now it's just reading and chance. Reading and chance. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. that's all you can do. Sometimes you find something that fits just perfectly. And other times it's more of a struggle, right? To find something that, yeah. Mm-hmm. but I thought and it worked beautifully. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh no, it's fine. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. There's so many, I feel like there's just like, you know, it's the square peg round hole thing. I'm just like, whatever, like this is, this has to go in. What are shapes anyway? Yeah. Well, what was the shape that didn't fit? I mean, what's the most fascinating thing that you wish you could have included, but you just couldn't find a place for it? Oh man, so uh, there's an essay, "The Path to the Saints," um, and this was in there up until like the last version, and then and then it sort of had to, it had to be, I excised it. Um, the Path to the Saints is an essay about um, I. So my, my dad died while I was in college. And I was in study abroad in Rome while I was there, and um, while I was in Rome, you know, I, we did one of the the class trips we took for study abroad was going through the catacombs and especially the catacombs in my neighborhood. Cause I lived outside the walls of Rome. Um, and in ancient Rome, you know, the, the dead were buried outside, um, outside the city walls. And, um, so it's an essay about those catacombs called the catacombs of Priscilla. And then also my study abroad host, um, this, this, this wonderful, wonderful, sweet man named Paolo. And what the essay is interested in is sort of um, the alternate selves um, that kind of come, I think, a lot of times with death. Um, and some of that was, was you know, quite simply looking for my father and other people. Um, so finding a sort of father figure in Paolo and how that allowed me, in a way, um, to distance myself or, or, or a little bit ignore my father while he was going through this really um, you know, kind of devastating illness. And those alternate selves also play out um, in the catacombs in that, you know, quite simply, there's an example of um, uh, there's these early paintings of uh, these priests leading, um, you know, leading this religious service. And for a long time, those priests were believed, well, now it's believed that those priests were women, but sometime over the years, their features were sort of distorted or changed so that they appear to be men. Um, and the same thing for a painting of Medusa um, in there where Medusa, her, her kind of curls, the Gorgon curls have been sort of um, cut or whited out so that it, the, the idea of a pagan um, figure would not be present in this, you know, Christian, um, you know, Christian space. Uh, and so sort of ignoring how, how much, you know, what the actual truth was there and how much things mixed around. Anyway, so one of the, one of the, bodies that was discovered in the catacombs uh, was the body of this saint named uh, Philomena. Um, and Philomena performed her, her sort of bones were rescued, were, were pretty much plundered, um, were taken out. Um, they went on display through I think, you know, various churches in Italy. They, you know, miracles were performed because of them, you know, that the blind could see, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and Philomena came to, I forget her name, but came to a nun in the, I believe, the 19th century and narrated her existence to this nun and sort of um, her kind of violent captivity and death. And she became this sort of saint and this martyr. Um, afterwards, it's found out that basically different epitaphs from different catacombs were put together to make this grave for Philomena. Um, and the bones were... Now I can't quite remember, but the bones were either mashed together or the bones were taken from another grave. And, you know, we have no idea who these belong to. Um, and Philomena, you know, doesn't really exist in a lot of senses. Um, and it seemed to me this like this sort of perfect, um, this perfect sort of extension of how we change bodies or how we reinterpret bodies or how we reinterpret the identities of people to serve our needs, right. To serve, um, to suit our interests. And that was all in there, but it was just such, I just couldn't make it. I couldn't make it fit, even though I really wanted to make it fit. And so it got, it just got, yeah, I got cut maybe some other time, but because it's such an interesting story. And, um, but it's just like, everyone who read it was just like, and what's up with the martyr now? Um, yeah. Well, I mean, that's a gem. You can save it and maybe apply it to something else later. Yeah. It's always, yeah. Which is sort of the continual, I think it needs to be the writer's mantra, so to speak, right. You know, whatever happens, this can be material for later. Or if like, I can cut this, but I didn't actually lose it. Right. It's almost like I'm my mom kind of hanging on to all of her stuff being like someday this might be, you know, this might be useful. This might be the perfect, you know, vehicle or, or, or whatever. 
Oh yeah, exactly. That's a great connection. Um, and I think, you know, your instinct to put it in there is great because um, it seems to work with this idea that the living tend to um, tend to use the memorial of someone dead in order to make them the person that they wished they were or want to remember them as. Mm-hmm. I think that's a pretty fascinating idea, um, which the book um, echoes throughout in pretty much every essay. Yeah, it's again, it's that idea of, um, you know, I wrote this book because, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't, it was the loss of my father, sure, but it was, um, it was the loss of the memory of the father, right? It's, 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 um, it's that sort of double instability, right? Not only, so the, the life is gone, life is unstable, but then the memory starts to become unstable as well. And once you sort of, catch on to the tricks that your mind plays or to the way that your mind um, or body, like, you know, try to cope or try to change things or try to alter things. Um, In this case, I mean, like alter someone um, that really, you know, that gave me some sort of urgency to write it. Cause I'm like, I, I knew it was changing and I wanted to sort of, study and think, um, and kind of inspect and explore, you know, why, why it was changing, why it did that and, and how that pops up in, in, um, you know, so many other customs and customs or in so many other ways that, that, that people kind of process, um, the death of a loved one, um, kind of both people near to me and, 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 you know, complete strangers. Um, and yeah, so it's always that, in many ways, yeah, in many ways, I think it's it's a book sort of about alternate selves, um, not only the alternate selves that, you know, say one becomes while, say that I became while losing, um, while my father was ill, but also, yeah, the alternate selves or the alternate roles, um, the sort of dead, just like you're saying, the dead are, are meant to play. Um, and it seems like... I think we'd be a lot healthier or, or maybe I just speak for myself if, if we realized our tendency to do that um, and identify that and, and think about why we did that. Um, and not that that necessarily means we'll actually, you know, be able to remember the person fully as they are. Cause that's, you know, obviously we each through it, see it through our own eyes. It's subjective. It's distorted. There's no way that we're going to be able to do that. Um, but at least to know, to know our tendency to always um, insert this change as people, right? Um, if not over ourselves, over, over um, people who are, who are kind of no longer there. Um, so I'm, I'm curious too about um, sort of the, the format of the book. Um, if we could switch gears just a little bit to talk about, so this is a collection of essays and you touch upon so many different things. Um, but at its core, it's the story about um, the speaker, you, and dealing with the death of his father, which is a very difficult person in anyone's life to lose. Um, And so there are a lot of memoirs that come to mind about this kind of loss. And so I'm curious about why you chose to use this as a through line for a collection of essays rather than writing a memoir. And what about this form, essays, um, allow you to do certain things that maybe a memoir wouldn't have let you do. Yeah, I think, you know, this sort of, and thanks for, it's, it's one of those things that kind of gets kind of lost when the book comes out, you know, especially because it doesn't, you know, I think it says essays on the back cover. Um, it does say essays on the back cover. I'm looking at it, but it doesn't say it on the front cover. And it's always a sort of, you know, for me, there's a, there's a big distinction between, you know, there's memoir in here, there's personal, there's personal material in here, but, um, the thinking behind it was, I think, an essayistic, you know, kind of form of thought. And by that, I mean, just um, sort of the question I asked myself about this is, is, okay, who cares? You know, like, I, I, like, you know, I lost, um, I care, you know, I lost, um, my mom cares, like I lost, um, you know, a a, a close family member, I lost my dad. Um, But that's not, that's not necessarily a story in itself. And, the, I think what was driving this book wasn't, for me, what drives perhaps an essay or a book of essays um, is a set of questions um, you won't answer 
but that you can attack or approach attack sort of a violent word, but you can approach or you can sort of sally with from, from all of these different angles. Um, Cause you have all of this material around you. You have all these ways to look outward or to, to reach outward or to reach back, you know, in time or even to reach forward in time. You have all these, these different ways to um, approach the experiment of, of trying to answer these questions, even if these questions are unanswerable and, so that for me was, you know, more than, you know, the, the narrative self wasn't that it was an important narrative in some ways. Right. But it wasn't, it wasn't enough to sustain um, an entire book for me, or at least a book that I wanted to write. But I did feel, you know, getting those senses of getting those little obsessions or questions, um, those things that I couldn't reconcile and then finding out what tools I had around me, like as a writer, um, you know, through doing research, through going out, you know, into the field and going to a place or interviewing someone or, you know, writing about um, people in my life or writing personal, you know, essay. I had all this sort of kind of this, this, this wonderful sort of constellation of, of um, ways to approach these. And the sort of beautiful thing there is that once you start to approach them, then you start to get new questions or you start to ping off in new ways or go to new stars, you know, so to speak. And, and that was... Um, that was something that I felt could sustain the book more so than the narrative, right? Um, to say like, here's what happened. Why did I do this when this happened? What do other people do when this happens? And what does that say about us? Right. So it gave you some range that a memoir just typically doesn't allow for. Yeah. Which is not to say, I mean, I've read, you know, wonderful, wonderful memoirs that, that move in totally unexpected ways and with, with complete, you know, with a range I didn't see coming, I'm thinking of um, one of my favorite books of last year is um, the, the Glass Eye by Jeannie Vanasco, which to me works a lot of ways, a lot of the ways in which an essay works, but is, you know, it, it's, it's a memoir also about, you know, the loss of her father. And it's just, it's just the structure of it is just um, astounding. Um, and it's really well done. But yeah, I, I sort of, you know, I wrote this book and I, I thought, you know, I need an essay in here about an 18th century Venetian landscape and cityscape painter who fabricated his scenes and altered his scenes and um, altered the people in the scenes because <laughs> there are ways to the questions I think I'm asking in this book that this totally relates to the ways that we alter or imagine or fantasize about, um, about people we've lost or the dead. Um, and I think in a memoir, that essay has no place in it necessarily but if we're, or that subject matter has no place in it, but if we're tracing, if we're tracing questions, I think over essays that that essay does, and it's actually really important that, that it be in there, you know, at least, at least to my thinking. Mm-hmm. Well, we're almost out of time. So I just have one more question to you, um, which is, so in thinking about, questions. What are some things that you're hoping readers will come away from your work thinking about or still considering? Oh, um, that's a great question. I, I feel, I don't think I have anything in, I feel like to, I, I don't want to impose, one thing I've had to learn about, you know, I think one thing I've learned with this book is I, I don't want to impose, um, of course, I'm writing a book that's full of my views or full of my thinking about a, a certain subject matter, but I, I don't really want to impose any of that on, on other people. But I do, you know, at the same time, I recognize that, that a book sort of does that in, in some ways or asks to do that in some ways. Um, but I think one of the more practical things, perhaps, like that, that I sort of hope for with this book is that um, I wanted to question why we act this is why I use sort of myself as, as an example. I want to question, I want us to question like why we act um, certain ways in certain situations and this situation being, you know, why we sort of um, why one of our choices, you know, when confronted with um, something so difficult is to cut ourselves off from grief or to cut ourselves off from that person and that other person's body or that other person's memory. Um, 
and how we approach that both in the moment, you know, say in the process of that other person dying and, and how we maybe approach that afterwards, right? And how that person is remembered or how that person is, um, you know, where that person lays to rest. And I think, I think we become um, more thoughtful, empathetic people, I hope, um, if we can recognize that tendency in ourselves and, um, and really sort of question that and really kind of deal with, with the difficulty of that. And that's something that like, I didn't really realize until I was writing this. Um, and that was one of the, you know, the pressure points I was trying to push on in the book and, you know, who knows whether that's, that's even a practicality that, that, that one can take away. But I think, um, I think anytime, what I hope is that these essays can, can maybe shake people out of a rhythm um, that they might be prone to fall into. Um, or, you know, even selfishly speaking, shake myself out of that rhythm um, whenever, that, whenever that happens again, you know, to me. And, like, I do think there's some, some value in that. Um, and I think that's, you know, what generally, you know, what hopefully a book or a piece of writing does in, in um, the first place is that, you know, in many ways, sure, it, it can reaffirm or can speak out to or, or you know, illuminate things we consider to be true, but it can also, it can also um, shake us a little bit, um, whether gently or, or violently. Um, so I guess that's, that's, that's one hope, but <laughs> well, a gentle shake, um, but uh, a gentle shake, but, but who knows if that's, it feels sort of selfish to, to it feels sort of unfair to, to ask to impose that though. Right. But um, impose it nonetheless. Yeah. <laughs> you know, well, why do we read? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, Thomas, thank you so much, not only for bringing this book into the world, but also for coming on to the New Books Network to talk to us about it. It's been a joy. Um, and is there anything else you wanted to add about the book? No, I think that's it. It's uh, it's out there. It's on the it's on the interwebs. Um, but uh, it's, it's Counterpoint Press. It's Counterpoint Press. Yeah, which who, who are who are wonderful. Um, it's a, a wonderful, wonderful press. Um, and yeah, I, I owe a lot of thanks to them um, for, for, for taking it and putting it out into the world um, and doing a really nice job with it. But, um, but yeah, thank you. Thank you, Zoe. It's been, it's been really fun to chat and, um, and to get to do this. This is, um, it's, yeah, it's, it's a joy to get to talk about it. Okay. Well, thank you so much. My name is Zoe Bossier, and you've been listening to an interview with author Thomas Mira E. Lopez on the New Books Network.